Thanks so much for tuning in. This is the DEI Is podcast, a show by DEI practitioners for DEI practitioners and the organizations that look for them. This season, we're taking on what the Diverity Consultant Network has identified as some of the most pressing issues in DEI in 2023. I'm your host, as well as Diverity's community engagement lead, DEI and conflict management practitioner, Enrico Imanalo. In our second episode of Season 2, the DEI's podcast, we're talking to Abiola Bala, founder and CEO of Fern Education Studios, LLC, and Kamudi Goda, founder of The Human Conversation, each practitioners of DEI with strongly international lenses. The underlying question we invited them to discuss was, what are we missing out on in conceiving of DEI with a U.S.-centric focus? Or, to put it another way, is DEI too, quote-unquote, American? Here's a little preview of what Abiola and Kamudi had to say. I think a lot of this has to do with perception. People in other countries are thinking, well, that's a U.S. problem. What does that have to do with us? As with a lot of other things, the soft power that U.S. has wielded for a long time has definitely influenced workplace rules and regulations and the thinking around what is good, what is aspirational and what is no longer acceptable has spread beginning from the U.S. to many other countries. DEI is too American with Abiola Bala and Kamudi Goda starts in three, two. Diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, access, justice. In our current climate, these words are configured and reconfigured seemingly endlessly, but the through line for whatever acronym you prefer is trying to have a positive impact on the way that we work and, of course, live with one another. To that end, such efforts are constructed with a capital S society in mind. That is uh, everyone, or is it? To talk about just that, I'm joined by Abiola Bala, founder and CEO of Ferd Education Studios, and also Kamudi Goda, founder of The Human Conversation. So welcome to the studio, Abiola and Kamudi. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being on. Oh, and Kamudi, I think you are still muted. But uh, before we jump into our questions here, I'd like to pivot to our audience. So what's your take? Is DEI too American? Why or why not? Okay, so while the, uh, the uh, responses are rolling in from that, let's turn to our first questions. So uh, in conversations surrounding social justice and of course colonialism, we talk about Eurocentrism, that is the positioning of European cultures, thinking and being as normal or even the default culture. When it comes to racial justice, anti-racism and even DEI, some say the conversations revolve almost solely around the US. Whether or not that is the case, why would that be a problem? And further, how does that impact the workplace? So opening this up for either one of you to jump in. So I can jump in. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Abiola. And I think a lot of this has to do with perception, right? Once the perception is that, you know, DEI is just about the U.S., people then in other countries are thinking, well, that's a U.S. problem. What does that have to do with us? Like, why are you bringing this here? We, we, we don't have, it, it has nothing to do with us. What it is, is that for me, I think right now in the U.S., race, the, the racial injustices and all of these, all the social justice injustices we see in the media, it's loud. So the, it's, just loud the world is like hearing everything that the u.s has to say and it's very hard to kind of then take that and say hey how does it work in my context because we don't think like that we just think okay well that's them i'm not gonna really there's this disconnect i would say that's happening there so it's like people don't really see themselves as part of the conversation because there's right. a participant who's taking up so much space within the conversation. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, Kamudi, I wonder if you'd like to weigh in here. Yeah, I, I, it's fascinating really to trace back the roots of where our current discourse and research around DEI is stemming from. 
uh, workers' rights, employment rights in the workplace emerged, of course, from the Industrial Revolution and some of the early rights around um, what workers are um, entitled to from organizations, what a workplace should look like, even rights for women uh, stem from the civil rights movement, the early work done by ACLU, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So um, as with a lot of other things, the soft power that U.S. has wielded for a long time it has definitely influenced workplace rules and regulations and the thinking around what is good, what is aspirational and what is no longer acceptable has spread beginning from the US to many other countries. As a young law student in India, I knew very clearly that if I wanted to work as a corporate lawyer, finishing my education in the US was important. And that's how I ended up in the US for 10 years because it was the most advanced uh, regulatory system in terms of employee rights, uh, workplace regulations and corporate culture. And while that's shifting today, a lot of DEI work and DEI policies that workplaces around the world have adapted stem originate from the US. And that's why you see a huge overhang um, the interesting thing is it's not one size fits all. And that sensitivity and flexibility is why we are having this conversation today. Yeah, that's so interesting to kind of pull this apart and, and look at it, right? So one of the things that we're keenly aware of as DEI practitioners is, of course, bias, right? And anchoring bias is very real. So your first data points often kind of shape how you feel like you play into that conversation and your ability to participate, right? And some of the comments rolling in kind of get at that, right? So uh, we've got Mohamedou uh, chiming in, and my apologies if I haven't said that correctly, but what he is saying is DEI came out of the civil rights movement in the US. Most other countries have not had a civil rights movement. Yeah, so that's that's kind of a, an interesting point, right? There's a, a clear uh, development of these ideas throughout uh, the American history, right? And that's not necessarily the, the same elsewhere, right? But where some other places are coming in is right at this DEI conversation, right? They might not have had their own internal movements. And so some of it is maybe like externally uh, entering into their context. Cassandra is chiming in. I like to think that while some DEI topics and approaches do have very American origins, in reality, DEI is global. Context matters. Yeah. Uh, either one of you want to respond to either one of those comments? I would, uh, in fact, fine-tune that framing a little bit more. I think that there have been very many... Um, movements around the world in different countries at different points in time. So it would be a generalization to say that other countries have not had a reckoning. They've all had some struggle, some uh, reframing of approaches uh, in their own histories. It looks a bit different. It's not that it has not happened. The ideation, the thinking, uh, the values are perhaps um, going to look a little bit in, in different vocabulary sometimes or sure. different uh, framing and prioritization. Yeah, and I think that uh, gets at one of the things around language, right? So we know that certain social dynamics can be expressed in different forms elsewhere, but the general public is probably not aware of that fact. Nabila, it looked like you wanted to get in there. Yeah, because I was going to say that I, I do agree with what um, Cassandra is saying, especially about context mattering, because I think what ends up happening in the DEI space, and then when we talk about this topic, the initial thought that comes into people's head is that, oh, we're talking about race. We're talking about racial injustices. However, DEI, is race is a big part of this, yes, but we tend to forget all our other identities that we hold, you know, and that intersectionality that comes with that. So when we start taking all of those things into consideration, yes, context does matter because it is so nuanced and it's not this cut and dry, just like, oh, it's about black versus white. It's about brown versus this. It's not just about that. And so we can't just say, hey, here's this one size fits all. And I think, Kamudi, you, you mentioned that, right? This one size fits all, like, oh, we're going to tell you exactly what to do in order to make, you know, for us to start thinking in this global way about yeah. DEI. We can't because we're three people here <laughs> on this thing with 
so many intersectional identities, yes, but we also have so much, there's also so much else out there that we can't speak to, that the nuances are there. So, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like part of what is being said in this room right now is when we're actually thinking about diversity, we're thinking about difference. And difference looks very, well, different depending on the context. And we have to get intimate with that difference. It's not enough to say, yes, this is point blank how we handle difference, right? This is how we will field any and all kind of new entries into the field, which would be kind of ridiculous if we think about it. So if we're pivoting to that concept of inclusion, right? So now there's been more of a shift. Uh, people are aware of diversity. They're aware of equity. You know, this is like a very generalized narrative. But now I'm seeing more people pay attention to specifically inclusion and belonging, right? But, you know, even that concept, inclusion, like how far does that kind of generally extend in your mind and why? I, I would like to provide some context from my, my observation. A, a, a few different anecdotes come to mind. Um, there's one colleague working out of India who complained that uh, for Martin Luther King Day, um, there's a company-wide directive to take time off and reflect on the importance of uh, racial rights uh, and progress there. And while that is, of course, incredibly important, coming at the busiest season in India where people were working overtime, were likely not paid very well for that overtime, uh, putting extra pressure on those people to work late hours when it's not safe for women, for instance, uh, or um, public transportation logistics is not available after a certain hour, for them to work extra so they can take that time off the following day when perhaps a discourse on race is not the most urgent when public safety, basic minimum access to healthcare or inclusion of women as a workforce with unpaid labor and other areas are the most urgent in terms of needs and priorities. If you see that that is a, is a mismatch and a little bit of people saying that that's actually putting more burden on me today. Um, and so that's when perhaps it, that, that disconnect, that cognitive dissonance comes in where you're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion. I don't feel included. I don't feel like I have an agency or voice in participating in the conversation as a person who counts, as a demographic that counts. Um, this is also true in terms of perhaps talking about LGBTQ in a lot of Asian countries where that is actually criminalized. And so you can have a wonderful pride event in the office and the person steps out of the office and right back into the closet immediately because it could mean either being jailed or being stoned. Um, and so those sort of data collection uh, could be um, putting people in jeopardy as well. And I know HR heads who have taken the call independently that we will not collect this data because it's plausible deniability. If the government changes and it becomes hostile again, it's safer for my people to not have that demographic uh, collected in my company. So these are important factors and these are really important conversations, which is why I think regional offices need to have greater voice in discussing how the DEI agenda and values and priorities of the organization strategically should take into account whether or not that fits the needs and the context of each country. Mm, thank you for that. Abiola, any, yeah. anything from Yeah, there? I 100% agree. And I said it before and I say it again. It's this new, I always say inclusion is a nuanced approach, right? We cannot just say, hey, we're going to include everyone. What does everyone mean? And who is everyone? Do you even know? Or are you just looking at it from your perspective this is my idea of who everyone is. They're all kind of like me. And I'm, I'm assuming that they all, you know, think and feel the same way or have similar backgrounds, right? And even within, within the U.S. context, within a U.S. workplace, maybe they don't have a branch outside of the U.S. There's still, it's, it's a multicultural country, you know, facts, right? So there are still people within that space that how do you know that you're actually including them if you act, if you don't really know who they are? And then as community was, you know, 
speaking to when you have these organizations that have such a global reach, that have branches in different countries. And I think about organizations that have branches in the Caribbean, right? So I'm originally from Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. And there's so much, we we are also a multicultural, multi-racial, like, everything multi in Trinidad and Tobago. And one of the things we do do within our context is we celebrate everyone. And we've done this from the school system. So we're celebrating everyone in terms of we learn and understand about the different religions, the different people who are represented in the country from elementary school. Well, we say primary school. From primary school. And with that comes that understanding that even though this may not be something I believe in, or may may not be something I participate in, I understand and I respect it. And I see that as where inclusion comes in, right? In that there's this understanding and this respect for others. It's not the same. We're not getting the same thing. So yes, we may have this for example, we celebrate the Hindu fest, um, holiday of Diwali in Trinidad. Do I participate in all of the, the, the festivities? No, because I am not Hindu. However, I have family members who are, I have friends who are, and I respect and understand. So I will still say, you know, hey, happy Diwali to you. Or things that something as simple as that. And I'm being very granular and very simple with this, you know, so you can understand. So that to me, when the comp when companies, when workplaces are incorporating that kind of idea in that I we know who is in our organization, even if we don't celebrate this in the US context, we know who is in our organization in the Caribbean. We know they are gonna celebrate this right? We're going to acknowledge that. We're not going to try to put what we do in the U.S. on them because they might not have, they they don't have the same uh, experiences or Mm. they may not, but it's still that, whatchamacallit, it's still that, that give and take of understanding and respect at the end of it. That's how I see it. Yeah, so it sounds like in Trinidad and Tobago, there's like a, a culture of multiculturalism, whereas perhaps in the U.S., right, it is a multicultural country, but for so much of its history, the aspirational identity has been to become American. And in doing so, some of that cultural celebration perhaps has been flattened. Is, is that fair to kind of say? Yeah, and I think it even shows, and I and and this was something that I realized a, a while back. But it's interesting to me how in in America you always identify yourself as something American, mm. right? So you're Asian American, you're African American, you're you know Filipino American, you're whatever American. However, in Trinidad, we're just Trinidadian. Mm. There's uh-huh. a that difference is interesting to me because because if you're American, how is what does that mean for that idea of inclusion? If you, there's still that separation, right? There. So it's like more of that individual identity versus that collective mm-hmm. identity. Mm-hmm. So let's pivot to a couple of comments now, and the comments have been great, everybody. Thank you so much. Uh, keep them coming. Uh, Lakeisha is chiming in here saying not understanding DEIB from a global perspective has been the Achilles heel for many DEIB officers in the U.S. who are tasked to do international work or those who work for a global enterprise. They cannot shift their mindset to understand DEIB means something different in different parts of the world. Uh, We've got some follow-ups here. Um, Devin is chiming in in order to achieve true inclusion within the workplace and beyond, we have to evaluate and potentially deconstruct the systems that historically were not designed to be inclusive. Yeah, so that's definitely part of the challenge as well. Uh, And we've got, uh, let's see, a a question here. 
from Dia saying, how do we approach this work by asking more questions to communities from around the world about their history and present day priorities? I feel as if adapting a practice of cultural humility is where we begin. Curious on the thoughts of others. So I don't know, Abiola or Kamudi, I don't know if you wanna weigh in on this one, but uh, I'm sure we'd love a response. Uh, this has been my experience. I think the conversation is, um, as, as in Asia, based, so far I recently moved to Europe and I'm uh, understanding and exploring the context here. As a practitioner based out of Asia, although my education was in the US, my observation is the, the, the discourse is dominated by the far more mature and sophisticated conversations around DEI in the US. And what that looks like is, what looks like table stakes for a bunch of DEI consultants sitting in the US might actually be boundary expanding work in a country coming out of Africa, Middle East or Asia. For example, saying we have all this data and we've spliced it this way and that, and here's what this demographic um, looks like. It's a model minority. And if this is Asia, um, um, you know, API month. And so uh, you might say, oh, they're, they're a very well paid uh, overrepresented in universities, model minority in the US, but they're certainly not a monolith in Asia. There's so many different countries and different populations with different access to education. And therefore, that same person might be um, the lowest uh, power wielding person in a workplace out of Asia. And therefore, when you change the context, the identity of the person changes. And so what might look like such a basic thing, you people are having a panel conversation about that, um, it might be derisively looked at, but in fact, it's something really, really important. Um, conversation around accessibility, for instance, could be around, um, you know, uh, sonification, uh, how to make sure the data is visible to those who have lower uh, ability to see things. But accessibility might literally be getting data in a war-torn country where data is not collected at all. And so the context is very different in terms of what accessibility means and what, it's, what is possible. Similarly, if you have conversations around diversity, equity, inclusion, and it's dominated primarily by somebody who feels a complicated relationship with power and privilege, a woman from North America and Europe might feel they are a short-changed minority but they're a very, very privileged, advantaged person. If they are in Asia, they have demigod status, whether it's uh, you know post-colonial overhang or whatever you might call it. And therefore they need to also accept and embrace that complicated relationship with power and privilege and acknowledge that I cannot simply be in a different country where I'm very privileged continue to hold on to my feeling that I'm underprivileged and then I'm treating everybody as a guest of my space when in fact I'm the guest of their space. They deserve to own this stage. They deserve autonomy, agency, a voice. And these are shifting contexts. They're complicated. Unfortunately, cancel culture and all of our brittleness around this topic means that we're simply unable to hold that more than one thing can be true at the same time. Yeah, I mean, to your point, one of the things that I'm seeing that kind of uh, is cause for concern is the more that we're able to understand our particular context and how power is expressed, uh, the more fine-tuned we have to get in our efforts, right? But what we're not seeing is people's ability to engage with that complexity increase, right? We talk about resilience, but instead what I'm seeing is people becoming fragile along more points of weakness, uh, if you want to call it that. I don't know. And I'm seeing you two not along here. So uh, I don't know if Abiola, you got something to say. Yeah, 100%. I completely agree with everything. And I, I don't even want to reiterate everything both of you just said. I just want to add to it. And what I want to add is, you know, the question that came up about what questions do we ask, right? I think we, we know how do we approach us with questions, right? We always have questions. But I think what is missing along with the questions is do we want to hear the answers mm. and are we going to listen to those answers and are we going to unlearn right yes we can ask we can come up with thousands of questions to ask everyone but what are we going to do with those answers and is there going to be change that comes from that 
That's a great point. That is a great point. And also itself an unanswered question. Yeah. <laughs> We've got uh, Elena weighing in here saying, when I work with international employee groups, I found it helpful to actually start the inclusion conversation about around LGBTQ plus issues because it includes every race, every ability, and every income level. It's been interesting to address international inclusion around that perspective. Yeah, so to your earlier points, both of you, like race may not be the most salient issue of inequity, uh, any of the DEI spectrum, really. And so finding something that's going to resonate is really, really important because we can very easily, as we've seen, turn people off from the work if immediately, again, that anchoring bias, they're saying, I don't see myself in this. I'm not part of this conversation. That's over there, right? We got to hook people from the very beginning. And so, being very thoughtful about that is very hard, but it's it's super, super important. So uh, if we're uh, pivoting back to our audience here, and thank you again for all your engagement, uh, what is a clear indicator that we need to amp up or alter our efforts around inclusion, either at work or outside of work? So as those are, uh, are coming in, we'll move into our next section. Uh, so I'd like to hear from both of you. As the U.S. is a nation and society with deeply international roots, how can we create more meaningful inclusion in the workplace at an international level? I've seen some good, successful stories, um, Enrico. So, for example, recognizing that if you are seeking to increase representation in STEM, uh, ensuring that there are role models and mentors and uh, educators available in schools that could look sometimes like providing, making um, provisions for period products so children, girl, girls uh, can continue to go to school um, and, and um, have healthy um, experiences in school. It could look like an organization like Goldman Sachs tying up with a business school to ensure that they provide management education to increase representation of minority-owned businesses so that supply chains can support more minority-owned businesses. And those can have revolutionary and cumulative ripple effects across communities and societies. So whether it is building communities up and providing microfinance, um, healthcare access, or education, all aspects of business holistically, not just within your workforce, those have been the most boundary-spanning, impactful efforts that multinational organizations originating from U.S. have undertaken elsewhere. Um, I'd also chime in on that, in that, you know, you asked the question, and I come at this, I, I, I always like to share the perspective I'm coming from. I'm an educator, right? I've been in the education space for over 20 years from high school, university level, curriculum and program design. So when I think about, when you ask the question, how do you create meaningful inclusion in these spaces? The first thing that comes to my mind is, well, in order to actually start to do certain activities and have like, you know, these outcomes and all these things, what exactly is the problem? Mm. Right. And the problem looks different in each space. So until we actually say, hey, let's stop just like looking at what everyone else is doing and taking their like examples and trying it out for ourselves, how about we go in and assess what the root cause is in our organization, do that analysis to actually find out, okay, this is why include, we, 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 are, we don't, there's no impact on our DEI initiative. The inclusion is just not there or people are not feeling like they belong or that they can thrive in our organization. This yeah. is what it is. I mean, to your point, Abiola, I've kind of wondered, you know, so like with people kind of, that is a tendency, right? When something is successful in another context, there's a tendency of people from the outside looking in, they'll see that and they'll try to take it and replicate it in their own context, okay. right? That, that's, that's a normal thing. Until it isn't, until it, it kind of breaks down, right? So uh, 
I guess for me, part of creating this conversation, one of the the unspoken conversations, but I think it's salient to raise now is like, how do we make sure that our efforts for inclusion aren't ultimately another form of colonialism, right? Because we know that ideas are can go viral, right? And if if there's a misapplication of an idea in another context, then people might do it and say, oh, that's how it's supposed to be, not realizing that they're just kind of perpetuating ideas that have very little to do with their own circumstances. Yeah, it's true. I 100% agree. And I think what ends up happening, and I think it's happening right now, is when these, these activities that they're doing, these don't work in their context, people become disillusioned. And I think that's a big, in, in society right now, there's so much disillusionment with DEI and DEI initiatives. And a lot of organizations are like cutting that from their, you know, people are getting laid off. Let's yeah. say it as it is, yeah. right? Um, because they're like, but we don't see the impact. Yeah. But we did everything everyone else was doing right. when everything kind of like blew up in 2020. We did all the things. Right. Their right? stock went up uh, yeah. several percentage points. So why isn't why, ours? Why didn't ours? Right. But what they didn't do, as I said, is they didn't figure out what actually sh- would work for their own context. And it mm. goes back to, I think it's Cassandra, correct me if I'm wrong, context matters. Right. And I think so. And what ends up happening is in order to find figure out your context that's the work Mm. it takes work and it also i always say that inclusion is not the goal it's a journey because if you think of it as just the goal you're just work so what happens after that (laughs) yeah we're all included we're we're a utopia yay (laughs) That's all it took, everybody. <laughs> That's all it took. Oh, my God. <laughs> but but that's not the case, right? It's actually a journey. It's a journey that we have to, you know, try things. We have to assess things. We have to iterate on things, right? It's the cycle. As we learn more, we do more. Because what we're doing now is based on the knowledge that we have now. That's true. What I do in the future is going to be based on the knowledge that I've learned from what I did now, right? It's it's that ripple effect and that thing. And a lot of the times people don't want to hear that because we also live in a society where we want things done now. <laughs> right. Or else. <laughs> right. But the reality is if we're really addressing yeah. the issues that arise around diversity, shocker, we're going to need a diversity <laughs> of approaches. Yes. Oh my gosh. Weird. <laughs> so weird. Weird. <laughs> well, so if we're kind of thinking uh, beyond borders a little bit, uh, what would the benefits be of creating workplaces that are more inclusive of the global population? I, I love that question, but I also don't like that question. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about why you also don't like that question. <laughs> I think... I think because the benefits are clear. We're human beings to each other. You know, like we're we're not we're not living in a space where we feel like we can't fully be ourselves that we have to mask all the time when we come into a workplace, you know? That we have to that we're actually uplifting voices that we've never heard before, that we're actually allowing people to thrive in the workplaces, not just survive, right? That's, I think, you know, it's it's so simple, yet it's so difficult, all of this. And I think that's why I don't like it, because I can say all these things. But again, my educator and my curriculum design brain is like, but how are we doing that? Yeah. Like, what exactly can we do to have that impact? Where does that start? Yeah, and that quality of life question, I think, is a big one for sure. Mm -hmm. 
So we've got some comments coming in uh, from our audience question, right? So Dr. Jill Creighton mentions, a great indicator that we're in need of an amp up for me is keeping an ear out for a lot of meetings before slash after the meeting to understand who doesn't feel heard or knows they need to strategize with others of similar identities to figure out how to be heard. I think that is a great indicator. Let's see if there are others. Uh, not seeing too many others. So I will, of course, pivot back to another audience question. All right, so this one being, what is one thing that the recent push for greater inclusion has stirred in you? And that's intentionally vague, everyone I know, but uh, what is it, uh, where we are with inclusion efforts right now, the recent conversations and everything, what does that evoke for you? What does that bring up for you? I'll leave that up as we kind of move to our next question here. So in your mind, if inclusion efforts were to become less centered around the U.S. and were able to factor in the global context, what benefits would we be able to unlock? Perhaps how would that impact the work culture that exists here? So perhaps a speculative part of the question, but interested in your responses nonetheless. I, I think that the um, some of the points we've discussed before uh, and that Abiola has raised as well are, are really relevant here. To some, the question of is there a business case for inclusion and multiculturalism might seem done to death, but therein lies the fallacy. It might seem like it's over-discussed, over-indexed, but it actually, there is a huge need and a huge gap, depending on which country you're looking at. And therefore, it's funny that on, on one hand, it's done to death and people are like, I don't want to have to prove that anymore. The business case is just outstandingly clear. And at the same time, you need to iterate it and, and repeat it again and again, because not every year has heard it, not every year that's heard it has absorbed it. And it's not truly really come to life in many contexts, many places. It gets only more complicated when people who are in different parts of the journey are all now working together. Um, and, and to that point, respect and being able to handle ambiguity and complexity is absolutely important uh, on that count. Uh, multiculturalism is a fact. We cannot escape it. But is everyone benefiting um, from it? And how can we make sure that we are at once pragmatic and acknowledging the reality of the economic downturn and the fact that people's uh, jobs are at stake, people are getting laid off. And that's as true and enabling executives of every demographic to survive that is as important as not completely shortchanging the efforts that and the progress we've made so far. How can we have both of those nurtured at the same time? Thoughts, Abiola? I just agree. <laughs> I'm here like, I'm like, Eek, yes, because I think it's just so important that we, 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 we stop, it. I'll put it plainly, that we get over ourselves a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to do the facilitator thing. Say more. <laughs> Let's unpack that. Because I think a lot of the times we, we're, we're centering ourselves yes. and how we feel right and you know if we think about those in positions of power that's what ends up happening right we like but but what is this gonna do for me what is gonna do for our bottom line what is it gonna you know is this going to um what is it gonna do politically what is it gonna do this way right and that it ends up not being about who it needs to be about. And I think it's important. That's why I said we need to get over ourselves and realize that sometimes it's not about us. It has to be about others. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, picking up on that thread of maybe something being, quote unquote, done to death, right? There is a cultural trait in the U.S. Uh, that prizes novelty. Right. We see it all the time in the business context. Yes. Innovation, innovation. Like, OK, yeah. we're enamored, enamored of innovation. Why? Because the new is better. Like, <laughs> where does that come from? Like, what logic is there? Like, that's really mostly a, a cultural trait. Right. And so if we're sitting there saying, I'm bored with this, I've heard of this before, let's move on then that absolutely becomes about our own boredom and impatience rather than actually, you know, the issues at hand here, which are 
people who maybe can't afford to be bored are are being negatively impacted by uh, the the run of the mill things that happen in our businesses and uh, in our lives. So I think it's it's definitely worth thinking about. And that leads me to my next question, which is how can we ensure that inclusion doesn't center or privilege certain groups over others? And I guess, uh, you know, the whole push for social justice and DEI as a whole. Yeah, um, I think. Oh, go ahead. Um, it's, a, it's a very specific. So thank you, Abiola, first of all, um, for um, allowing me to go. Um, one of the uh, most toxic things that um, I noticed when I transitioned from living in America and working there to back moving back to Asia is, um, in addition to the fascination with novelty, there's also this deification of the charismatic, assertive leader. There's very much the culture of a superhero, superstar executive who's going to set the world on fire, break things, and innovate fast. Um, and that simply does not translate into all contexts. In many contexts, many cultures, you have the quieter, um, if to use a trope, a, a more introverted, soft-spoken leader who's more rooted in community and teamwork. And unfortunately, I've observed way too many empowerment courses, leadership programs run by organizations where they train people to speak assertively and have charismatic executive presence. And it is genuinely soul shredding when you're told that your approach that you've successfully developed um, and use to effectively lead your local team is going to make you a, a, a weak, unimpressive leader when you translate into a multicultural boardroom. And these kinds of tropes and ideations are perhaps the first thing we should discard. One of my favorite metaphors I learned in coaching school is that the Canadian Inuit have more than 53 words for the word snow. Mm. And that is perhaps a vocabulary that is completely irrelevant in a desert. <laughs> and so our question should be, what is it that you have the most nuanced vocabulary for? What is it that you care about? And let's honor that. Uh, and, and let's appreciate that my need for having 53 words about this substance is equally important as your need to have an extremely nuanced uh, distinction for uh, one substance yourself. Both are equally important. Neither need to compete in this space for all of those conversations. That's a great framing and great point. I love that, <laughs> I love that so much. It is, but it's so true, right? And I think one of the other, you know, piggybacking on all of that, I think one of the other things we kind of forget is that we use our logical brain a lot when it comes to DEI. And that helps us to kind of disconnect from the, the people who are being harmed, mm. right? And I think it's, it'll, so we will put out these presentations, we'll talk about this kind of more in an, like this overarching sense, but what, you know, and I say this to a lot of my clients as well, what we're forgetting is that we also need to have that messy, vulnerable side too. Yes. And without that, with only the logical side and without the messy, vulnerable side, then there's always going to be that disconnect, right? And there's always going to be that idea that, I, you know, but I did I did the thing. We mm. had the workshop. Right. We, we had you know, we gave them an entire like series for them to watch at the beginning of every year. They have to go through that, <laughs> right? Because we're not thinking, oh, but what does that make people feel? Mm. What is coming up for people? Because one of the things to remember is that a lot of this is part of our life experiences. They determine how we are how we respond to certain things within our professional life our personal life right we never know what are somebody's triggers yeah you never know what are other people's biases so without having that space to to even or even like thinking how can we have that space 
to open up this messy, vulnerable side Beautiful. as well, then who who are we censoring? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Maybe no one. Maybe it's like economics where they talk about yeah. uh, like an econ rather than an actual human being, right? And that causes all kinds of problems for economic models. Um, so we've got some responses coming in here. Uh, I think this is to something that we were talking about earlier. So the business case. So Elena is uh, jumping in again, saying, but Gen Z has proven that they don't want DEI policies to be based on a business case. Maybe the executives need to hear it, but Gen Z will see through that as the motivator as inauthenticity in a second. I'm not sick of the business case. I love the numbers, but the next generation of employees does not consider it as the reason to be diverse and inclusive. Thoughts on this response? I I agree. I think that the what is the the need of the hour in each generation might evolve, mm. um, but um, nevertheless, you, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. Some of the rights that we enjoy today and take for granted were grounded in very real struggle of life and death, and there were a lot of effort of countless people that went into what we have today. And therefore, what's perhaps important is as the next generation comes into the workforce and they have a different ethos, a different lens with which they look at things, they nevertheless educate themselves and be aware of what the journey was so far. Because if we do not understand the history, we may lose um, the value and, and the progress we've made because we backslide. I've also unfortunately had conversations with uh, very young people who are fascinated by the idea of gender roles and they say those are beautiful and pass on and embrace them. That's because they were born in privilege where gender roles for a lot have uh, um, been dismantled, if you will. That's been their experience. Therefore, they romanticize it. Knowing history is important. No matter what the shift is, understand where they're coming from so that you can make informed decisions. And I agree with what Abiola said, it's relevant for this conversation as well, which is that um, it will continue to be messy and complicated. Our values have to evolve. What our values were at 19 cannot be what our values are at 39. One um, hopes not. Be, yeah, therefore it will be messy. It will be complicated. If you're gonna cancel me based on what I said 10 years back, you're probably not allowing that space for growth. Right. That was a different person and in a different time and a different cultural context. Yeah. Um, so we've got somebody else here. That's Clarissa Fusilier uh, chiming in, a diversity network consultant. Uh, we can't do this work without community. And community is a tough nut to crack in the Western hyper-capitalist society where people are numbers. And to be, quote, professional is to be cold and calculating. All of that is white supremacy culture, and that is what we as DEI educators in the U.S. are fighting against. Yes. Thoughts there, Aviola? I love that you put professional in quotes. I mean, I just say, <laughs> I do it too. Like, even when I say it, I be like, yeah, professional. Because what does that actually mean? Um, yes. And I think it, it, it is. It's, you know, a lot of this is that dominant what dominant culture is telling us to believe and sometimes even I have to check myself I'm like am I am I thinking this way because I think this way or am I thinking this way because people this is what has been thrust upon me <laughs> right and it it's as DI educators and pr practitioners professionals whatever we want to call ourselves at this point you know, a lot of the times we we have to also think about what does it mean for us to disrupt and to dismantle what and to help others do the same, right? Mm -hmm. And in that professional context, what does that actually look like? Yeah, good point. So I, I guess the next question on my mind is, how can we like moving forward, right? So if we're aware that um, at the heart of the conversation or like the perception is that the US is driving these conversations, the discourse around DEI, how can we ensure that DEI efforts inclusion doesn't center or privilege certain groups over others? Yeah, I think that that 
there's no simple answer to that. <laughs> Probably not what some people wanted to hear me say, but <laughs> but I, I I you know I I I I struggle with this question a little bit just because I'm like how how do we do that? I mean, I'm not sure, and I'm gonna be honest about it. Because I can tell you grand ideas, but are those grand ideas actually going to be realistic? This is me. This is who I am in this space. I'm the person who always asks you why. And I always go five whys deep. Because I want you to really, you know, think about, are you really able to do all these grand things? I, I call it grand gesture syndrome. Because a lot of the times when it comes to answering these questions, we go into grand gesture syndrome and we talk about all these big things, but are we really going to do those things? It's like, like New Year's like, resolutions, right? I know. Like how many of us are still holding on to those in May 24th? <laughs> I know I am. No, I'm with you. Um, so, so... Sorry, Enrico. Maybe I'm not answering your question. No, but I, we're I, talking I'm here very, as professionals. Yeah, we're being professional. We're being professional. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm very realistic about it. And I think what it comes down to is really getting granular and really figuring out what exactly can I actually do that I can actually commit to doing it, no matter how small it is, because I always say these small actions can create big impact. Yeah. And you mentioned like the need to iterate, right? So part of the current thinking on iterating is small interventions frequently, Mm -hmm. right? It's not Mm -hmm. these grand gestures. That's that's where we get into that whole reinventing the wheel kind of piece. And I, I'd like to add here, um, so mine's a, perhaps a slightly more uh, pragmatic um, observation, um, building on what uh, Abiola has pointed out, the why, why am I wanting to do this and what am I willing to do in service of that a resolution? Um, if you triangulate it um, at a systemic level, uh, being flexible and context sensitive, understand what is the need of wherever you're working, of the people you're working with, and and enable them, give them agency, give them resources, um, give them a voice to genuinely say, here's what we care about. Don't add your judgment and layer that on top. If that's what they want to work on right now, that's what's feasible for them right now, enable that to happen. So at a systemic level, I think sensitivity to the regional need and priority and the context and willingness to think outside the box. If you have this much budget on DEI and you have effort to spare, maybe for this year's uh, society improvement or social justice efforts that your social day, whatever impact day that you have, consider working with a locally rooted NGO or a government to do something that will actually have community level impact. Uh, maybe that looks like policy, maybe that looks like working with local organization at grassroots level that's already doing something good. So that's systemic. And on the uh, local um, con- you know, uh, advocate side, I am really working extensively right now on helping people recognize the importance of having boundaries. It becomes um, a really um, uh, encouraged thing to kill yourself at the altar of social justice ultimately takes a toll and people are burning out. They're often at the glass cliff. They're brought in to solve an unsolvable problem and then heads will roll. And the stakes are toll because it's not just a neutral objective thing I am solving for in a lab. This is my identity that I'm working on. I'm sacrificing my story, my suffering to bring this to your attention. And so uh, people who are working in this field, it, please don't suffer. Please have some uh, priority for your own well-being. Have some boundaries. Assert them. It is not okay to burn yourself up trying to solve something which you may not be able to solve immediately. So that's the second part at an individual level. And at cultural level, if leadership is more willing to acknowledge their privilege and power and that it's a complicated subject, I have my own triggers, 
and I might still be extremely privileged in ways that I'm blind to compared to the next person sitting uh, sitting right next to me. And I should be willing to listen and accept feedback. And that's very difficult. People are very brittle, particularly about emotive topics like this. So if I consider myself to be a good person who's extremely woke and a very terrific DEI advocate, and you come and call me out on something that I did that was super insensitive or I'm blind to my privilege, I'd be mortally offended because you hurt my self-identity. Yeah. And so for leaders, that ability to hold space and having compassion for themselves and others, curiosity and willingness to take feedback, that's the triangle. Systemically, uh, empower it, give them agency, budget, resources uh, at an individual level, give them the ability to establish safe boundaries. And at a leadership culture level, let's have an attitude of learning, compassion and curiosity. Yes. I think that's that's a great thought. Um, I wonder if we have time for one more uh, comment from the audience. It's kind of uh, kind of a big one, so let me know. But it has to do with anti-blackness. Is that something where are those waters we're willing to wade into in our last few minutes here? Sure. But before we do, can I just highlight something that Devin Owen yeah, said? Sure. And Devin said, and what you can sustain when it comes yeah. to all of this. I think that is so, I saw that and I was like, yes, snaps, exactly. It's true. I mean, that also brings to mind for me, like uh, something I was introduced to uh, is like circles of concern, circles of action, right? So that's Stephen Covey. And the idea is like, it's these concentric circles in the very middle is like our circle of action. So the things that we can have a direct impact on ourselves today, right now, from wherever we're sitting, right? And then just outside that circle, is our circle of influence. So things we can have an indirect impact on. And finally, the largest circle is our circle of concern. Many times we get tripped up because we get wrapped up in our circle of concern and miss out our opportunities to have a direct impact today. So I think, you know, definitely thinking about our social locators and where we're actually located and, you know, maybe within the organization or even just geographically, it can have a great impact on, on taking real action. Um, so this last uh, thing that we'll uh, dip into, Madeline is chiming in here saying, something that this conversation is making me think of is global anti-blackness and how anti-blackness exists everywhere. There's so much diversity within cultural contexts, but that seems to be an underlying mechanism of oppression. So I think this is in response to the general uh, thread that we've been tugging on here, which is diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, all that stuff looks different in different contexts. I will still hold that that is true, but yeah, there are underlying sources of oppression, like for example, anti-blackness among others, but curious about your thoughts here. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's there. I mean, I think about the culture that I come from in the Caribbean, right? A big, you know, issue right now is that idea of colorism, that the lighter your skin tone, the more privilege you have versus the darker your skin tone, the less privilege you're seen. And that shows up in when you go into a store, right? Who do they initially go to? They go to the one who's of the lighter complexion, who is seen as someone who is, you know, someone they would listen to, right? So many people have this idea that, and that's, you know, that's our version of that anti-Blackness. And I think all of it stems from that idea of white supremacy, colonialism, thinking that the people who came and colonized <laughs> the Caribbean are, you know, they, they saved us in some way, or they're, you know, that, you know, idea of the white savior coming in to help and to, 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 to make things better, or we're giving you all access to all these things, we're giving you these resources, all of these things make up a part of not only how we view ourselves, but how we view others in, in, through this lens, mm. right, of colorism, of anti-blackness, of all of that, right, and it's, it's, it's there in, I think, in every society. I lived in Japan for 10 years and I saw it there as well. Mm -hmm. My friends who were 
my friend from Kenya, a darker complexion than I was, was seen very differently by students versus me. Mm -hmm. I even had a student come up to me and ask if my skin was dirty Mm. because they didn't understand different complexions. Right. You know, and having to, how do you enter into this conversation with a five-year-old? Right. This is a five-year-old. Yeah. Right? So it's it's out there and it's everywhere, but it just looks a little different. Yeah. Just to drill down on that a little bit, a five-year-old in Japan uh, asking if a darker complected person's skin is that way because it's dirty might come from a very different place than a five-year-old from the United States. Exactly. Exactly. Kamudi, would you like to weigh in here? And speaking as a person who grew up uh, in countries uh, with a huge colonial history, it's very hard at this point to um, separate out the cause and effect. Um, Mm. Colorism is certainly rampant and we go everywhere. In all cultures that I have observed, colorism is is rampant. Um, Is there an understanding of where that emerged? Was it there previously? A historical text indicate that there was certainly far less ideation around the value of lighter color versus darker color, at least in in my country's history where I was born. So uh, it's hard at this point after so many years of colonial oppression, how those ideas became so embedded and have unfortunately caused so much damage. Um, Fairness screens in Asia are uh, a really horrible and persistent uh, cultural artifact. And it's absolutely from that belief that the European uh, beauty is the ideal standard. Indian film Mm -hmm. industry is famous and those continue to be the beauty standards even till today. Um, and so it's, it's, it causes a lot of damage, maybe a greater um, willingness to talk about some of these less discussed um, biases that we all carry with ourselves is really important. It's certainly not a conversation that other people, that reckoning that has happened in the US, there's a reason why communities all around the world have benefited a lot from the civil rights movement and all of that This happened in the US. Uh, what happened in, in Florida recently, Enrico, with uh, AAPI community being pitted against, that's the kind of really, really destructive attitude that we all need to wise up to and say, we're all in this together. And some of these ancient uh, ideas that were forcibly foisted on us, let's discard them. Let's free ourselves from that. That's a great point to end on. So um, any final thoughts as we close out here? I would just say this is not, this conversation is not one that can stop here. It has to keep going and it has, we have to keep digging into it because if we don't even question some of the things we say, how are we going to keep moving forward? So we have to keep having this conversation and have to keep thinking about, you know, these different perspectives and what does that actually look like? And for my part, what I'm currently thinking about is the fact that um, it's very complicated, but what intimidates a lot of people or makes them feel burnt out is the fact, is the idea that maybe it's impossible to solve for, but we are already in a better place today than we were before. It might not feel enough at all, and by no means is it enough, but we've made progress, and those that progress is measurable. Today, there are more people comfortable with the idea of LGBTQ because uh, people who are of grandparents' generation now have grandchildren who are comfortable with that identity. And therefore, they have to evolve their brains, whether they want to or not. If they want to love their grandchildren. Progress has been made. It's measurable. That's one. The second one is that it might feel like we're tending to the rose garden when the tsunami is approaching. But they're both equally important. We cannot um, absolutely abandon our DEI work because people are getting laid off. Uh, We cannot go back and slide back and progress. We have to nurture all of those holistically. Great. And so if people are looking for either one of you, uh, where where can they find you? So Kamudi, I'll invite you to go first. I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. My website is thehumanconversation.com and I'd love to have a conversation with you around all the complexity that DEI and making workplaces better entails. 
Great. And especially if you're in Northern Europe, please do seek out Kamudi. She's great uh, and available to you if you're in that in that region, but also globally. Uh, Abiola? Yeah. So you can find I'm also active on LinkedIn. Um, you can also find me at Fern Education Studios and on Instagram. I'm also on there at Fern Education Studios. I, you know, I'm also launching a new program called the with in collaboration um, with a self-care coach and consultant. Um, it's called the Disruptors Leadership Academy, and it's going to be fire. So if you are in the in the disrupting space, this is gonna be for you. So you can check out any of my my Instagram, my all the things to find out more about it. Great. Thank you both so much for being part of this conversation. It was absolutely fantastic. The turnout was really great. So thank you also to our audience. And uh, I guess one last plug for me, like uh, I am also uh, able to be hired. So if you're looking for somebody who can facilitate conversations and, uh, you know, do conflict work, then please go ahead. I'm also a DEI consultant. And, and it course- goes amazing. <laughs> thank you. And of course, if you are interested in finding, uh, you know, independent people and culture consultants, DEI people like ourselves, please do check out diverity.com. But until then, uh, I think that's it for us today. Thank you again so much, uh, Abiola and Kamudi. It's been a real pleasure to have you both on the show. And uh, I hope we get to talk again soon. Thank you so much. Both of you fabulous. All right. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Enrico here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the DEI is podcast. If you're walking away from this episode feeling like you've learned something, saw something from another angle, or if you just enjoyed it, give us a like, share it with your friends, and please subscribe. Building a diverse, equitable, and inclusive organization is hard, but finding DEI expertise and services shouldn't be. If you're looking, find us at diverity.com. That's D-I-V-E-R-I-T-Y dot com. Till next time, this is Enrico E. Manalo. See you soon.